Hello and welcome to GMI, Guitar and Music Institute. This episode features the second part of the Hummy Man interview. Hummy talks about his work in Berkeley, some of the incredible musicians he met and studied with. As well as this, he talks about his time after Berkeley, the various jobs he got working all over Canada and into the United States, and ultimately this episode ends with his moving to LA. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, please visit www.guitarandmusicinstitute.com for further downloads, videos, and supplementary materials to this podcast. If you are listening on iTunes or any of our other outlets, please subscribe. Love to have you as part of our family. So, coming up is the second part of the Hummy Man interview. I hope you enjoy it. What happened then, Hummy? I mean, that sounds a real hard, old, old school way of learning your your uh, your trade or your craft. Yeah. Um, no, so I so I got through Berkeley. Um, it was a great school. Uh, you know, I was very fortunate that at the time, like I said, the graduating class was so small that my classes were very tiny. And I got to work with some great, great, talented people. The other thing that I got to do when I was at Berkeley that was really amazing is that because I was Canadian, I could only work in the States on campus. And I somehow managed to get the job of being in charge of the uh, concerts. I worked for the guy who was in charge of the concerts and visiting lectures and stuff. So I got to meet Charles Mingus and, and you know, Clark Terry. I mean, it was just a who's who of like great musicians that I actually got to escort and personally meet. One of the great stories about that is one year. So not, not, so that was part of the job, but the other part of the job is that everybody who had to do a recital, which was all the performance majors. Um, I would, I would get them the list of who they were playing with and what their, what their set list was going to be. I would take that up to the printing office. They would print out. It wasn't really programs they were more like, you know, eight and a half by 11 posters and then I'd have to post these posters all over the school and then I'd have to be at the recital, turn on the lights, turn on the PA system, help them get set up. And I remember one time going to a recital and uh, and the place was like it was there wasn't a huge recital hall, but the place was like packed. And I didn't have any clue what was going on because for some reason I was not I, I didn't was unaware that this was happening. Turns out that there was somebody who was doing his senior recital who got fellow student Pat Matheny to be a sideman. And everybody came to see Pat. And this guy, you can just imagine a saxophone player was doing his senior recital and everybody just wanted to hear Pat play. And this Pat Matheny showed up at Berkeley when I was there as a student and then the next semester was a teacher. I was going to ask if I, I had a, an inkling that Pat and you had been there at the same time. There as a student, he's then there as a, a, a teacher. Yeah. But that happened a number of times when I was at Berkeley. There were a couple of people who came to Berkeley and just were so amazingly gifted that they, you know, it, it was obvious that there was nothing that, that, you know, they just would shed like crazy. And Pat was, Pat's one of those. Did you get to meet him? You know, possibly, but I don't remember because it didn't, you know, didn't make a mark on me. I mean, he probably came in and set up while I was helping set up the stage, you know, but that's about all. And I was, I think that was in my senior year and I was really kind of focused on getting my portfolio completed and writing all these big band charts and all that stuff. So I was, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of socializing time. There was a lot of 
a lot of time that I had to spend by myself writing music. You know, my portfolio was like 300 pages thick of orchestral works and piano pieces and choral works and you know fugues and I mean the requirements to graduate Berkeley when I was there were pretty pretty significant. You are listening to GMI, the Guitar and Music Institute. My name is Jed Brocky, and I'm in conversation with composer Hummy Mann. Hummy, it's always difficult for students to move from education into gainful employment, especially within the creative industries and especially within music. How did it work for you? Well, I knew I was going to be, basically when I finished, I graduated, I moved to Toronto because at that point that was kind of the music center of Canada, possibly still is, although there, you know, there are other pretty pretty uh, significant centers, Vancouver, Montreal. I was from Montreal, but I, but I wanted to be in Toronto because at that point, that in my mind was where television production, film production was going on. I moved there and I didn't, I started thinking that I wanted to do film music. And one of the things that was attracting me to film music was the idea that I was going to get to write a lot of different kinds of music. That's one of the things that I really appreciated about being at Berkeley is that I was doing jazz and I was in a rock ensemble and I was doing this, this, you know, rip off of the Paul Winter concert, and I was playing in the concert band because I was an oboe player, and I was writing big band charts for, for so it really, I mean, and, and that being quite honest with you, that had always been the case, even, even prior to going to Berkeley. I mean, I was teaching myself piano and playing in kind of a jazz rock band and playing guitar, doing folk and folk rock concerts. I mean, I, I, the variety of different writing and different music, and, and by the way, I was writing for all of these things. That really was what attracted me. You're totally submerged in music at this point. Yeah, totally, pretty much. So I got to Toronto, got lucky that uh, there was a school that was starting called the Toronto New School of Music. And it was basically an instrumental school where they had a lot of private lessons. And I walked in and I and I don't even remember how I found the place. I mean, it, it's totally, that memory is completely gone. But what I did know, they didn't have a theory composition ear training instructor. And so I said, great, I'll do that. And so I started doing all of the composition theory and ear training private lessons. And on top of that, we formed a school big band, which was the first big band that I had. And I was doing all the writing and leading the band. And the band was made up of faculty and students. And we would get together once or twice a week and do rehearsals of all my music. It was great. So I, was, I had an outlet that I was writing for and that I was doing and then, and then I was leading. And then that was like one day a week I was teaching. You know, there wasn't that much teaching work to do. And somehow, one of the musicians that I met at the school said, well, you know, the biggest booking agency in town is Bud Matten. And Bud Matten agency was like, you know, the band, an agency that was booking, you know, bands into clubs, basically. And at the time that I got to Toronto, there was a thing going on in a lot of the clubs in Canada, and I think possibly in the States too, where they did what were called show bands, which means that the band would not only play like dance music, but they would do a show set. It was kind of like a small Vegas show. And Bud Matten, who's a very smart man and, and himself a pretty talented musician, I think he was a sax player actually, yeah. He brought me in. I, came, I went to his place and I didn't even know what I was going to be doing. You know, I had no clue. Uh, I went to his office. I made an appointment with him. And he said, uh, so you're from Berkeley College of Music. And, you know, of course, some place, some people wear that as a badge of courage, but it's also sometimes, you know, if the player isn't a good player. Yeah, you're waiting to get shot down. Right, exactly. Absolutely. And so 
there was some skepticism about what that meant. Uh, you know, I was very proud of the fact that I was from Berkeley, but I was also I, I came to know that that also could be not a good thing. So anyway, I go in and I meet with Bud Madden and uh, he says, well, there's a band downstairs in the basement auditioning. You go audition. them." I'd never auditioned a band. I had no idea what I was doing. So I go down into the basement. They sing three, three songs and uh, I go upstairs. I say, well, you know. They, they, they didn't really know the chord changes of the tunes properly, and they kind of were singing flat, and their time wasn't all that great, which is all the stuff he expected from a guy from Berkeley. But then for some reason, and I don't even know why I said it, I said, but the worst thing is that they're just standing still like a bunch of stiffs up there. You know, that's, that, no one's going to ever want to watch it. And he turned, Bud turns around, and he says to me, you're hired. And I said, <laughs> that was the one thing he's showbiz, man. That was the one thing he said. You know, I've I've interviewed a bunch of Berkeley guys, and nobody has ever caught the fact that they're they have to be performers. It's not just about being musicians. Isn't it amazing how, uh, all, well, not exactly careers, but so much can just fall or one way or the other on just just something like that. It was it was unbelievable, and and it was at a time where Bud Matten was trying to make go from being a booking agent into a manager. And by being a manager, he could charge a larger percentage of, of, you know, commission from his bands, but he had to give them services. Well, what were the services? The services were, you know, you get more personal attention from the agents. Okay, big deal. You'd get to play the better rooms, which is obviously a big deal. But then the thing that he did is he said, we're going to have a music director in the agency and these guys will get to work with you. So here I am, fresh out of Berkeley College of Music. I'm given a company car. I'm given an expense account, and I'm now on salary. And what I have to do is I have to go and listen to bands, make notes about their performances, both about how they're doing the things, and then you know how they're performing. They're playing the right chords, is they're playing flat, is they're playing you know all the other musical stuff. And then I got to put shows together. So if somebody said we want to do, I'll never forget. There was this band that came from the Philippines. So these these young kids from the Philippines, and Bud said. I want them to do a big band medley. And I went, big band medley? They don't play any brass instruments. He says, you got you got to teach them. And so I, I learned, like, you know, what is a string of pearls? It's five notes. And the trombone part is... It's like the silliest thing in the world. So I was teaching these Filipino rock musicians, how to play trumpet and trombone. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about landing on your feet. That sounds amazing. And then, and then it turns out that all of the bands that were management bands got to go to Florida during the, you know, going to the southern United States to resort hotels in southern United States during the, during the winter when it was horrible to work up in Toronto. So Bud was flying me down to resort hotels in Florida where basically I'd have to watch the band during the, during their show, you know, during their act at night. During the day, I would do some arranging. And then after hours, we would get together rehearsals and I would teach them new pieces. So if they wanted to do like a, a platters medley, a platters medley, I'd, I'd do the transcription and teach them the parts. You know, most of these guys couldn't read music. So I would be basically teaching them the parts. We'd run the thing over and over and over again. And I'd get to spend a week in Florida. And then to add to the, to the beauty of this thing, <laughs> I, was, I had met my future wife who was working at Berkeley. 
she was the woman who was do, who's who's printing up the posters, Vicky. So you've met Vicky. She was printing up the posters that I was having to go put up on the elevators and and the, and the pinup boards to advertise the the, the different uh, you know performances and recitals. So I'm flying to Florida, and Bud would let me stop in Boston and go visit Vicky. So I I I leave. I'd fly to Boston. I'd spend two days in Boston with Vicky. I'd fly down to Florida for two weeks, spend two weeks in the sun, all expenses paid at resort hotels, you know, getting my salary and basically, you know, getting at least five or six hours a day free time to just hang out in the sun, go swimming, whatever I wanted to do, hang out with the band when they were socializing. Uh, and how then they, I'd fly- how, they, how did you manage to keep up this hectic schedule? <laughs> It was, you know, it was like I died and gone to heaven. The only problem was that the whole thing kind of came crashing down when Bud decided that he was going to retire and he wanted his son to take over the business, who was not a musician, was not a real good purple person. I mean, we just didn't get along, to be quite honest with you. And then at one point, Bud was trying to wanted me to train him to learn how to put together sets and stuff like that, and and it started becoming like a, a power struggle between me and this 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 guy who I didn't really have any respect for because he didn't have any background in music except for being Bud's son. So basically, you know, it was between me and Bud's son, and he, he of course he picked his son. At that point, I left the position of being the musical director for the agency and joined one of the acts in the that was that was part of the agency. And it was, a, uh, I forget the name of the act, but it was like a nine-piece band with, we had like brass players and stuff. And our show that we were going to do was the entire rock opera of Tommy. And so we, we, we rehearsed this for like two or three weeks and then went to a club and did, you know, we had to also do, you know, Brick House and various, you know, dance tones. But our show was the rock opera of Tommy. We did the entire rock opera. It, you know, it was a big deal. Nobody, you know, nobody was traveling around doing the entire entire rock opera of Tommy. We had, you know, trombone players so we could do the French horn parts, and it was amazing. I wasn't the lead singer, but I was the acoustic guitar player. We had an electric guitar player and a bass player and a keyboard player, and a number of the guys doubled on trumpet and trombone, and we had a full time sax player. It was a big. It was like nine guys. Anyway, I remember we went out of town to do our first week of of performing. And got standing ovations at the end of every Tommy performance. And so we knew we were onto something. It was in the middle of winter. We're driving home Saturday night. You know, you pack up and drive back. One of these young kids fell asleep at, at the wheel of the equipment truck. Luckily, he wasn't killed. But the equipment truck flipped, destroyed all of our gear, and ended the band. So after, you know, we, we were on – and – Bud had booked us into all of these great hotels because because of the response to the Tommy thing. And he was advertising as like, come in here, Tommy done live, you know, and we only got to do it for one week. Jeez. And then the band, the band broke up. And the next thing that happened was that I joined this country band uh, that, that had a lead singer named Linda. And uh, the drummer in the band was her husband. And... Uh, her husband kind of had a problem with rushing. So you'd start a, you'd start a piece of, you pick the fine time to leave me, Lucille. And by the time you were at the end, 4,000, da, 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 just like going, this guy like would take, you know, rushing, you know, for those who are not musicians, rushing means getting faster and faster, not in a good way. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
I, I've played with drummers like that. <laughs> right, we've all played. There's all of these issues. Yeah. And again, for those non-musicians, it's like when you when when people talk about drummers that have good time, it's like part of the element is that they don't change tempo unless they're supposed to. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we're playing mining towns in northern Ontario. It was it was it uh, stuff like uh, Mozart and Beethoven? Yeah. Or... <laughs> yeah, sure. It was more like. Mamas don't, mama don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys and Lucille and you know, uh, we we we'd sing stuff by the Oak Ridge Boys and I'm trying to remember what the other you know, uh, I, I forget all the country singers' names that uh, that we would do, but we, you know it was, it was completely country, and we were playing in these clubs that were not not the classiest places. I mean, in, in some cases, when we hit to the very northern end of Ontario, we're playing mining towns. We would come on like 45 minutes after the stripper acts would end. So, you know, there'd be a bunch of, of inebriated miners sitting around. And when Linda would come on, they didn't realize that the strippers had stopped and the band had started. And they go, hey, take it off, honey. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be delighted to see you guys. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's like, oh, now, now we're going for culture, you know. And I'll, and I'll, I'll never forget how this, how this happened, but it's, this is a true story. Um, one night somebody came up on the drum stand on the, on the stand when we were doing, I guess it was a version of some song that, that, that Frank had a drum solo and this inebriated customer held the beer bottle by the neck with the body sticking out and held it up to Frank. And Frank went around the drum set and hit all the Tom Tom you know, boop, 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 And then whack hits the beer bottle and the glass was flying everywhere. And me and the keyboard player i mean it was basically me on guitar and a guy named neil chambers who unfortunately passed away a number of years ago and neil was playing keyboards with one hand and left hand bass you know on a special keyboard that sounded like a bass yeah and that it was just a trio with linda and anyway so neil and i are looking at each other and going what the heck just happened the next thing we know Everybody in the bar is standing in line with their beer bottles. And Frank's doing this extended drum solo. Whack! And glass is flying all over the place. I mean, the stage was completely littered with glass, which <laughs> made the strippers very unhappy because the next day they would get up on stage and there's glass all over the floor where they're doing their gyrations. It was just a nightmare. If I, it, it felt like it was you know, out of the Blues Brothers before the Blues Brothers happened. You know, It was kind of like, oh, my God, what's going on? Did, how, how did you feel your career was going at this point, homie? Ugh, I was like, it was depressing. It was totally depressing. And uh, In a way, though, do you feel that the problems you had with, with, with the son of the, of the club owner or whatever was a good thing in a sense because it was maybe too comfy that? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing was is that I was not getting to pursue my dream, which is really I wanted to be a writer. And so I was on the road with Linda Lane for a while, and then I got hired. I got asked to join a comedy team, a Canadian comedy team, as their musical director. How did that come about? Um, well, they were also represented by Bud Matten, but they wanted to play bigger clubs. And in order to play bigger clubs, it couldn't just be a duo. They needed, like, a backup band. And so, so they – talked to me and we had I had actually done work with them when I was working for Bud Matt and I was doing arrangements for them because one guy they, they would perform with two matching 
grand pianos up on stage that had been gutted and inside one was a Fender Rhodes and inside the other was a Hammond B3 organ. And so they would do p- like piano and organ stuff. They were good. They were good for their audience. Most of the stuff they did was comedy, but then they played like one or two serious songs. And so what ended up happening is that I knew that my days with Linda's band were numbered. So I could survive doing the northern, playing the northern mining towns of, of Ontario. And again, the people were wonderful. It's just that, you know, we, we just played kind of these really rough and tumble places and rough and tumble bars. Um, they sound very much reminiscent of some areas of Scotland, to be honest. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, there's people that that's, you know, their, their lifestyle is very different than mine. And, and going out and, you know, getting slogged on, on a Friday night is, 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 you know, that's what they do, you know, and it's just, it's not the way I work, but, you know, I, I saw, I would say that during that period of my life, I saw some of the most amazing bar fights I'd ever seen in my life. There were more than once that I had to leave the stage because people were throwing beer bottles at me, you know. I they didn't like you were protected by a, a steel cage or something. In one that, one no, of that, it, I think the thing was is that, that we all saw that in, in the Blues Brothers movie. I never actually played in a club like that, but I think that there were two times in my life where beer bottles were thrown at me. One was playing with, with this band because we were playing right after the strippers and the clients of the club wanted more flesh than they wanted the country music. And so they throw beer bottles at you to try to get, get you off the stage and get the strippers back. And then the other time was when I was playing with the comedy team and we were playing at the um, Calgary Stampede. I just had to get off stage so that my guitar wouldn't get smashed. You know? what, what is the Calgary Stampede? Okay, well, let me let me get into that. So so basically what ended up happening is after, after playing with this, this country band, I joined this comedy team as their musical director and we added a trio that would travel with them so we had a bass player a drummer and myself and we all played multiple instruments so the drummer played vibes and the bass player played electric and acoustic bass and i was playing some keyboards some guitar guitar keyboards flute and oboe and also the other the drummer also played flute how's your oboe at this point honey you know, rusty but fine for inebriated characters who are coming to see a comedy team. So, you know, <laughs> I, was, I wasn't going to be joining any symphony anytime soon. That was for sure. But I, at that point, I still wanted to keep it up because I, you know, learned how to play oboe and I didn't want to lose it. What happened is that the comedy team would, we, we did an opening number that was kind of a Vegas opening number. And they would, the band would start and then these guys would come on and sing a song that was kind of a, in retrospect, a pretty, not, not, not something I'm particularly, particularly proud of but i did a bossa nova version of send in the clowns and that's what they came on to and then it was and it was a medley with that and a and a piece called love them love them love it there's a band from hawaii called kalapana and they we, we played one of their songs and it was a kind of in a medley so it started with send in the clouds and ended with kalapana anyway and then what these comedians would do is they would take a handheld light, which they used to call the equalizer, and they'd go around the audience and interview people and then shtick, you know, where are you from? Oh, I'm from such and such a city. Oh, we'd break into a song. Or they, you know, and sometimes it was a little bit kind of insulting, you know, it was, it was, and so they'd go around the room and if you were from a certain city, they'd make fun of the city. Or if you were, you were a certain profession, they'd make fun of the profession. And sometimes it was done with music and sometimes it was done just with comedy. And then 
other things that be part of the show is we do a Barry Manilow medley, you know, and things of that sort. It's pretty middle of the road type of stuff, but very popular. The Calgary Stampede happens once a year, and it's basically a cowboy tournament where they, you know, they do um, what, what's it called the, the, when they ride on the back of the rodeo. Rodeos. Rodeo. Yeah, exactly. It's all rodeo events. So we play the Calgary Stampede, which is basically the biggest rodeo event in Canada. It's once a year, and cowboys come from all over the United States and Canada to to participate because is the purses, you know, if you win an event, are very big but the entrance fees are pretty big so one night we're up on stage we're performing at a big huge club it's like 2,000 person club in the calgary at the calgary stampede at night and all the rodeo events are over and of course these guys are going around with their equalizer light and they find this cowboy who's got his like silver collars collar tabs and he's wearing a fancy cowboy hat and he's pretty drunk Turns out that he, you know, came from some city far away with his horse, and he got eliminated in the first round, and he's and he's just basically drinking his sorrows away. Well, of course, perfect target for comedy, right? So they start picking on this guy, and of course, he starts throwing beer bottles, and then other people start throwing beer bottles, and then the drunk guy leaves, and luckily the, the bouncers at the front door were pretty sharp because they caught him coming back with a gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it... So it's at that point that I probably started reassessing my career. <laughs> no, but being honest, what happened in terms of getting to Los Angeles and how I ended up where I am was that while we were on tour with Malton and Hamilton, and I did the longest road tour I've ever done. I did like a year road tour where I was actually on the road for a year. In fact, I got married in Toronto. My first anniversary, I was in Vancouver and my wife was in Toronto. And I said, well, this isn't going to work. And I and I wasn't getting to do what I wanted to do anyway. I had started writing big band charts and, and orchestral charts for them to do their show in Vegas because we actually played some of the rooms in Vegas, not the main rooms, but the small lounges. And they did quite well because it works for that audience. But they they really wanted to be playing main rooms, you know, where, where really the big dollars are and, you know, you could hire a whole orchestra. And I had an interest in that. But when that obviously didn't happen, I wanted to get out. I didn't want to continue doing this. The idea of playing Calgary Stampede again was not very exciting to me. And even though we were playing nice clubs in Florida and all this other stuff, I, I didn't want to be doing that. While we were on tour, we spent a couple of weeks in um, Los Angeles where we had a, 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 um, an agent down in Los Angeles and we four-walled the comedy, one of the comedy clubs down there. I forget which one. So four-walling it means that we basically take over the club and it's by invitation only, and they invited a lot of agents to come. And so we were trying to get them well-known in the States and with the hopes that somebody would take them on to kind of get them up to the next level of their career. And while I was there, a friend of a friend had been hired to write a song, to, to do a commercial for the American Cancer Society. And this woman instead wrote a, 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 an entire song. She was also a Canadian person who was down in the States trying to make her way. Somehow I got connected to her, and I went in and took this three-minute song and reduced it down to a 30-second commercial and produced the commercial that ended up being the most played public service spot during the heyday of Saturday Night Live. Wow. So on Saturday Night Live, I'd be watching Saturday Night Live with Chevy Chase and, and you know, the original cast and uh, John Belushi, and my commercial would come on. And so what ended up happening was that with the strength of that, the person who produced that spot, who actually hired this woman, was primarily a Spanish-language advertising producer. And so what was happening is that I would 
be on the road with this with this comedy act. I fly to Los Angeles on the weekend, produce a commercial, and my brother-in-law used to love making fun of me because I would do Spanish language. I didn't even understand the language, but you know, calidad no es sorpresa at Crossroads Chevrolet. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be doing the Crossroads Chevrolet spots and the Bank of Mexico spots, and once I had my toenail in the door in Los Angeles, which was very. That's when I finally gave my resignation to the comedy team after being on the road for a year and a bit with them. Vicky, my then wife, who was finishing her degree at, uh, and who is still my wife, by the way, um, in, uh, in, uh, in Toronto, she graduated from um, Ryerson Polytechnic Institute. We put everything we owned into a truck and drove to Los Angeles and uh, started my career down there. In the third part of the Hummy Man interview, Hummy talks about his time in LA, working with Mel Brooks and Mark Shaman, and how he really managed to, as well as becoming not only an orchestrator, but a composer within the Hollywood scene. So make sure you tune in and subscribe for that episode. If you do enjoy the GMI podcast, please consider supporting us through our Patreon page. A link is given underneath this episode on the GMI webpage. Thanks for listening and see you on the next one.